These are the daily lectionary comments for August the 31st. You can look at 1 Kings chapter 16 and 17. We're going to be introduced to the infamous King Ahab and the famous prophet Elijah. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, we'll get a glimpse into how Paul worked with the congregations and particularly the people in Corinth to raise money for the saints in Jerusalem. All right, for our reading from 1 Kings chapter 16 and 17, I have some quick explaining to do. We've skipped over a number of chapters, and I want to give kind of a broad purview of what happens in Kings uh, after the split that we've just been through, and Jeroboam being the first king. First, I'll start with the south. The south had a single dynasty ruling over Judah and all those who were loyal to this dynasty. The dynasty is the house of David, and all those who were loyal to the house of David continue with one king, always a descendant of David, sitting on the throne. In the north, you had no kings of the house of David. There were various dynasties that one would replace another. Uh, in the north. And every time you had one dynasty replace another, it was a bloody affair because whatever dynasty arose up had to wipe out the last vestiges of the previous dynasty. Otherwise, they would be in danger of losing their throne in a civil war. So in the north, you had a lot of assassinations and a lot of coups and a lot of problems. In the south, you had relative stability. In our devotions, we're going to focus primarily on the north at first. Now, in general, Jeroboam uh, uh, ruled starting about 930 uh, BC, and the northern kingdom came to an end in 722 BC. So it lasted a little less than 210 years. The northern, tr the southern tribe, loyal to the house of David, would limp along for another approximately 140 years after that before it would be sent into exile. So we're going to focus in our readings first on what is going on in the north, and we are going to be introduced to this wonderful king uh, Ahab and his lovely wife Jezebel. Now, for most of the kings in the north of the, among the rebellious, uh, the, the, the criticism that the scripture will give to each and every one of these kings, at least, is that they continue to do evil. Uh, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They continued in the sin of Jeroboam. That would be the language that would be used. In other words, they continue to maintain their rival sanctuaries, rival priesthoods, rival festivals, and remain disloyal to the house of David. That's what Jeroboam started. And so each and every one of the dynasties, even though one dynasty replaces another, would continue in the sin of Jeroboam. They would either do that or do even worse. And that is go over to overt idolatry, which is what we have with Ahab. Ahab is the second king of the house of Omri. Uh, and and um, Ahab did not just continue in, in the sin of Jeroboam. He married Jezebel, a devotee of Baal. He built a shrine to, to Baal, who was the, the male Canaanite god, and he built a shrine to Asherah, who was the female Canaanite god. And he worshipped in these places, and he imported all these prophets of Baal and other, uh, and other religious personnel. So in other words, he's, he's not just continuing with the rival shrines uh, that Jeroboam had set up. He, he's actually going full bore into idolatry itself, him and Jezebel. Now, so we're going to look at Ahab 
and and there, in the House of Omri, there were four generations. Ahab is the second of four generations, uh, just as Solomon was the second in in the line in the House of David. Ahab will be the second in the line of the House of Omri. Uh, there will be four total generations before the house of Omri will be wiped out by Jehu. Uh, Jehu will last another four generations before he will be wiped out, but we're not going to get that far. Now, as I said, in the South, everything is much uh, simpler. There's just one dynasty, and it never does get wiped out. Of course, Christ himself is of that dynasty. Now, in the North, we have Ahab primarily, and we have two prophets that are sent to Ahab and his uh, uh, and the other kings of the north, Elijah and his successor, Elisha. Okay, Elijah and Elisha didn't write anything, but First and Second Kings will tell us about their ministry, and their ministry was primarily dealing with Ahab and his descendants, and then Jehu and his descendants. So Elijah and Elisha are extremely important figures because God sends them to try to correct the corrupt and idolatrous gods, uh, uh, kings of the north. In the south, we'll deal with that later, but we have Hezekiah as a famous king, Josiah as a famous king, both of them commended for being a little bit like David, and Isaiah and Jeremiah as major prophets that ministered there. That's for another day. Now, in our reading today, we are introduced to Ahab. Ahab, the scripture says, did more evil than all of the kings of the north before him, provoked the Lord more to anger. And that's because he's, he's going over completely to idolatry. I mean, we're not even pretending anymore. Um, and so, so Ahab is a, a very evil man. And then we are introduced to Elijah. Much more attention, of course, is paid to Elijah. It, we meet Elijah simply because Elijah comes to Ahab and says, thus says the Lord, there's gonna be no rain. Uh, until I give the word, which does not mean that Elijah has the personal power to turn off and turn on the spigots of the rain. What Elijah is saying is, when the Lord tells me, I'll tell you there's going to be rain. But until he does, there will be no rain in this land. So we meet Ahab. He's terrible. We meet Elijah, who confronts Ahab. And then Elijah is told to get out of Israel. He takes up residence by a brook east of the Jordan River. So he's outside of, of Israel. While this famine is going on, Elijah is fed with water from a brook and with meat and bread from ravens. Kind of like how the people were fed in the wilderness, actually. Later on, he leaves that spot and he goes up to another place outside of Israel, Zarephath. And he is fed by a widow. And she's fed uh, uh, by, by the Lord himself in the jar of, of flour and oil that, that, never, uh, that never empty. So the, the scene here is set. We have Ahab on one side, desperately evil uh, and completely idolatrous, and his wife Jezebel. And on the other hand, we have uh, Elijah sent by the Lord, uh, very much in the style of John the Baptist, or you can put it the other way, John the Baptist was in the style of Elijah confronting this powerful Ahab and Jezebel um, and with the word of the Lord. And uh, we're going to see how this plays out very famously, uh, the stories here uh, of how Elijah dealt with Ahab and, and Jezebel. We're going to focus on him, then Elisha, and then we're going to turn to the kings and the prophets in the south. 
All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. This has always been a, a cute little section of scripture to me because it, it shows the apostle and, and the Christians in such human terms so easily recognizable. Paul is, as you know from yesterday's devotion, uh, what's on his mind right now and what he's talking about in 2 Corinthians is this effort to raise money in order to provide relief for the Christians that are in Jerusalem that have been hit particularly hard by this famine. And Paul is going to be passing through uh, first in the north, Macedonia, and then in the south, Achaia, where uh, Corinth is. He'll be stopping there in Corinth, probably, and then he'll be heading uh, to Jerusalem. And what he's doing is he's stopping by all these congregations and collecting from them offerings which they have pledged to give for the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. Now, in this letter from 2 Corinthians, uh, he, he's, he's kind of prepping the folks in Corinth uh, so that they will give generously. He, let, let, me, let me sort of um, paraphrase uh, what he's saying here in these first five verses of our reading. Because I said, it's, it's very amusing and very human. Essentially paraphrasing, he says, look, I have boasted about you in Macedonia all those congregations up to the north uh, that, uh, you, you know, you're familiar with. I boasted about you. I've talked about, you know, how deep and fervent your love is. Now, the Macedonians have given very generously to this cause to help the saints uh, in Jerusalem. Now, then he gets to the point. Titus is delivering this letter. He's reading this letter, and he's there with the other uh, uh, brothers. He said, now, look. I want to make sure that neither you nor I are embarrassed when we arrive actually to collect the offering. Um, you've already made your promise, but it would be very embarrassing if you'd kind of not fallen th uh, follow through with this and uh, your offering turns out not to be very good because you, you hadn't you hadn't really, you'd forgotten about it and you hadn't really put your, your best effort into it. So I'm reminding you in this letter and Titus is here to remind you also so that when we arrive, your gift will be commensurate to all that I have boasted about you. And as much as the Macedonian churches have given, you'll at least give that amount. And that way, neither you nor I will be embarrassed. You won't be embarrassed for yourself and I won't be embarrassed for all my boasting about you. Now, because of that, I'm sending Titus and I'm putting all this in this letter to sort of prepare you so that you will be ready so that we'll all be proud of one another. Now, to me, that's just cute because in you might think of leading a congregation, preaching and teaching and all of that. Um, it, the, the vast majority of what you do is on a very high spiritual plane. You're talking about great things and the love of God and the kingdom of God. But an awful lot of what has to be done in real life churches and in the lives of real life Christians is to encourage them to do the real life details that need to be done uh, in the world and in the kingdom, such as um, providing a sufficient offering for the offering uh, for the operation of a, a congregation or um, for uh, for the relief of saints who are under famine or hit by an earthquake or whatever organization, administrative things, and so on, are all part of the task of a congregation um, being together and how one deals with 
money that's raised, how one spends it, uh, how one encourages people to give more generously is always a somewhat delicate thing, uh, but it's also a very real thing. And, and if our faith is truly uh, to be genuine and not only in our hearts and in the air, but also in our lives, then it has to penetrate even to the, the very um, concrete things such as how much we give to the church, when and how we give to the church, and then how the church spends the money and how it is very um, uh, transparent in how it handles the money. All of these things were, were important to the apostles. It was important to St. Paul. That's why he had the other brothers with him for transparency and, and clarity uh, and so that everybody would know what's being done with this money so that uh, the glory of the kingdom and the glory of the Lord would not be besmirched by things that don't look good or, uh, or something like that. So anyway, this is a cute little section of, of scripture. Read it again, and I hope you see the same thing.